Let's uh, just bow our hearts, shall we, as we turn to God's word together. Heavenly Father, as we come once again before your word, we want to come humbly. Lord, not thinking that we know everything or understand everything, but Lord, knowing that we are just children and you are our Father. And that through your word, you want to equip us and teach us, Lord, everything that we need to know. So, Lord, help us to learn the lessons that are here before us. Help us, Lord, to see your heart in these things. Lord, help us to learn from the mistakes that others made. And, Lord, to grow together in knowledge and in grace. Lord, we just give you this time. We pray you speak to us through your spirit. Unblock our ears, we pray, and our hearts. Lord, may we be receptive to you. For, Lord Jesus, we want to bring glory to you through our lives. So we just give you this time now. Just speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are moving on in our study of Second Kings. We've gone through the, all of First Kings and now into Second Kings up to chapter 17. We've just been looking really at the accounts of the two kingdoms in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel itself, the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. And we've been just seeing how things really have just gone from bad to worse, as people have moved away from God, have tried to do things their own way. And of course we see such parallels in our own lives, in our own country, of the way that there was a time in this country when there were many godly men and women in positions of authority that sought God, that wanted to do the right thing. And sadly now, those kind of individuals are very few and far between. There are still some godly men and women, there are still some Christian politicians, but they are by far and away in the minority. Let's jump straight in then, chapter 17, and pick up where we left off last time. So we read, now in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, uh, began Hosea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And no surprise, we're told, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Not really a great comfort, because he's guilty of a crime before God, of doing evil in God's sight. And notice again, he's done evil in the sight of the Lord. We said a few weeks ago, you know, a lot of people look at their own lives, they judge themselves by their own standards, and they think they're okay. Well, it's not about what you think, it's not about your standard, it's about God's standard. That's how you'll be judged when you stand before God. And they've done evil. This king had done evil. And he's given this kind of little um, possible uh, word of encouragement. Really doesn't make any real difference. But not as the kings. He's not as bad. But does it matter if you're not as bad as somebody else? You know, if you've committed a crime... And somebody, let's use an example that will be very foreign to the ladies, but very familiar to the men. Uh, Let's take speeding on a motorway, for example. Because I know that ladies would never do that kind of thing. But the men, unfortunately, we still have that kind of childish uh, drive in us sometimes. And, you know, let's say that you get stopped for doing 88 miles an hour, and somebody else gets stopped for doing 95. You know, if you plead to the police officer, but I wasn't as bad as that person, does it really help? Will it change anything? No. It doesn't make any difference. And of course, sometimes we love to compare ourselves by other people. Ultimately, if we've committed a crime, we've committed a crime, that's it. And we have to pay the penalty. And of course, before God, it is no different. If we have sinned, it doesn't matter the extent of your sin. 
It doesn't matter whether you've ticked every box in the category of sin or not, or whether you've just done a few things. If you've offended a holy God, if you've done something before a holy God that would separate you from him because he is holy, then a price has to be paid. It's a price that you could never pay. Even the smallest sin is enough to separate you from God. And it's a price you cannot pay. And this is the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus paid a debt that we could never pay. And he paid the price in full. Incredible. And he did it because of his great love for us. Just to... um, Help you see where we are again. So we've gone through all the way down from Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Continual changing of dynasty. Uh, one of the longest dynasties is that of Omri. Um, and then, of course, Jehu, his four sons, as we've seen, sit on the throne. But another change of dynasty. You keep going on. And we've come right down now to Hoshea. This is the last king of Israel, of the northern kingdom. And um, we'll see this morning the northern kingdom go into captivity. Such a sad situation. And notice also that from the start to the end of this, we're only looking at a period of about 264 years. Uh, It's just interesting when you look at the whole panorama of history, right from the creation and right the way through to where we are now. And you've got this relatively short period of time. Really, we're looking at about 400 years or less than from the beginning of the monarchy to the end of the, the kingdom in Israel. Uh, you know, before that, they'd been a theocracy. God had been their king. They'd followed God as a nation. And right up until the time that they reject God effectively and appoint Saul because they want to be like the other nations. And from that point, they've gone from theocracy where God was their king to apostasy. Where now they've gone away from God altogether. In just 400 years. And I just thought it was quite interesting. You know, you think back in the last 400 years... In this country. You know, we are 2015. A few years ago, we celebrated the 400th anniversary of the translation into English of the Bible in the the King James Version. You know, at, at that time, there were some incredibly godly men and women in this country. And of course, Henry VIII did what he did, separated from the Catholic Church for his own reasons. In fact, Henry VIII never wanted to cease being a Catholic. Um, but, of course, the Church of England gave him that um, uh, partial excuse to, to separate, and he was obviously doing what he was doing for his own reasons. But at that time, there were some great godly men um, who were behind the scenes and working very hard. People like, uh, even going a little bit before that, you had Stephen Langton, who was responsible for putting the verses and chapters in the Bible. He was very instrumental in bringing about um, various um, legal reforms and so on. Um, of course, the Magna Carta, uh, which we've been talking about this year, the, the anniversary, 800th anniversary of that. Um, but going on through history, some incredible individuals, We have Thomas Cromwell, a name you may not be familiar, the great-great-granddad of Oliver Cromwell. He was one of the advisors to Henry VIII, but he was also a very godly man. A lot of bad press is given about him, um, but actually he was a very godly man if you actually look at some of the history of the things he was trying to do. Um, And it was during that time that there was moves being made to try and get the Bible translated into English. And of course we go on from the time of Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, a great queen, um, no doubt uh, had a heart for God in some of the decisions, the things that she decided to do and wanted to do, uh, keeping this country again separate from the influences of the papacy. 
Um, and then down on through to the time of uh, James, and obviously he's the one that sanctions the, the translation of uh, the Bible into English. So an incredible period of history. That was about 400 years ago. And in these 400 years, look at where we are now. You know, we, we've moved so far away, even you know, in terms of the, the political leadership. People just don't care for the things of God. There was once a time that the, the Bible was revered. Now it's ridiculed. You know, we thankfully still have a monarch on the throne in this country, who, as we're about to celebrate, will become the longest reigning British monarch. But somebody who, once again, clearly seems to have a heart for the things of God. But what will happen when our Queen dies, when she moves on? What will happen to the spiritual temperature of this country? There's so few people left now in positions of authority that care for the things of God, that love the Bible, that would quote from the Bible as a source of authority. You know, just like Israel, this nation has gone in this kind of downward spiral. And we've had many kings, many leaders, many politicians who cared nothing for the things of God. In fact, some that have brought in laws that have been totally contrary to God's laws and rules. So we're in a very, very similar time. And I say this because we need to always be mindful of the fact that the things that we're looking at in Scripture are not just some ancient historical thing of what happened then. These are echoes of what's going on right in our day now. And we read, Against him, against King Hoshea, came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents. As if that was really going to help. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he'd sent messengers to So, king of Egypt. That's his name, King So. Um, and uh, brought no present to the king of Assyria, uh, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now just to uh, comment a little bit, just from a historical perspective, for those of you who like history, I'll uh, wake you up in a couple of moments. If I don't like history, I'll wake you up in a couple of moments. For everybody else, I think this is just quite fascinating. Um, if you look at Assyria, back in Genesis 10, there's a little bit of contention, but it does seem to be the case that Assyria was actually built by Nimrod. Okay, So we have this line coming down from Ham, we have Cush, um, and then we have Nimrod. Uh, and Nimrod being an individual who clearly was a, a wicked individual, in many senses was a forerunner of Antichrist uh, for a number of reasons. Um, rose to great fame because he became a hunter. What was he hunting? Well, it may have been that he was hunting animals, and yet that wouldn't necessarily give him great fame. I think Nimrod, and looking at uh, all sorts of different historical things, you can tie threads together, uh, would have been hunting giants. I think that was his uh, prize, and that's what he was going after. Because you remember that there were giants in the earth prior to the flood that brought about the flood, that God used that, that was the reason God brought the flood. But we're told in Genesis chapter 6, also after that, and so after the time of the flood, there were these giant beings who would no doubt be terrifying. Uh, of course, much Greek mythology uh, and a lot of Roman mythology is all drawn out of these things. But anyway, uh, Nimrod seems to be the one that founded Assyria, seems to be the first one that tried to set up this kind of one world empire, one world government. It was actually his dad, Cush, that was responsible for building the Tower of Babel. So interesting roots for Assyria. 
Um, but the empire as we know it in modern times, there's many, many people that were kind of ruled in this area, but the empire as we really know it doesn't start till around about 1228 BC. So a little bit after, this is when Israel are back in the land, just as a, a young, fledgling nation in the land of Canaan uh, that becomes known as Israel. Uh, and it was around about that time, 1228 um, that we find uh, Tilgath Beleza the first uh, is the one that uh, is the one that really is credited with founding the empire. Moving it onwards in time, we then get to two kings fifteen, and we saw there Pul mentioned um, as being a king of Assyria. He's the first king of Assyria that really oppresses Israel. We then get on to uh, Tilgath uh, Pileser II. There's obviously been another one in between those two I mentioned. Um, and it's him that we saw that Ahaz down south, king of Judah, tries to buy his support against Samaria. And um, we looked at that a few weeks ago in 2 Kings 16, verse 7. Well, then we move on to uh, Shalmaneser. And this is the king that we're looking at uh, at, the, at the moment in this chapter. Uh, this is the king that now is going to lay siege to Samaria. And for three years, the city is going to be under siege. But it's interesting, although Sargon, the next king, uh, of Assyria is not specifically mentioned at this point in the text uh, is actually Sargon who completes that siege as it were and carries Israel, the northern kingdom away captive. Now according to uh, one of the uh, um, artifacts that's been found uh, and there's lots of this in the British Museum, I'll mention more later some 27,280 people were carried away from the northern kingdom of Israel uh, by the king of Assyria, by Sargon at that point. Um, then we go on to Sennacherib. Uh, he'll lead assault on Judah, that's the southern kingdom, uh, and we see that uh, in, a, in a short while, Lord willing, we'll get there this morning. Um, and then his son, uh, Ezra Hayden, uh, by all accounts a much weaker king, um, because at this point Assyria becomes subdued by Egypt and then later by Babylon, and then finally um, Ashurbanipal, uh, another very famous Assyrian king, partly because of the historical uh, artifacts we found from his time. And he's referred to in the book of Ezra, chapter 4. So these kings of Assyria, um, this very, very powerful nation, I'll show you later geographically the area that was covered, but let's pick on. So. Wake up for anybody that's not interested in history, we'll move on with the text. Then, the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in uh, Halda, in uh, the harbour by the river of Gozan, uh, in the city of the Medes. Now he's taking the people away and distributing them and moving them around the various parts of his realm. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel, and of the kings of Israel which they had made. So, again, just a record of the fact that they'd gone after foreign gods. They hadn't served the Lord as they should have done. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. Interesting, isn't it? They did secretly. The sins that are done openly, that people are aware of, you know, once you get to that stage, really, you're, you're a long way past the line. But there's a lot of people that do things secretly, thinking they can get away with it because nobody else sees. 
You know, there's a lot of people that indulge in all sorts of things when nobody else is watching. Or maybe when there's no Christians around you, maybe you behave differently. Maybe your language changes when you're around work colleagues. Or maybe your behaviour, your uh, jokes may change. Or the way that you speak about certain things. Or the way that you would maybe imply that you like certain things so that you fit in. I mean, sadly, too many Christians do that. Almost like they're, they're undercover and they don't want to blow their cover. But it's interesting here, the Word of God records that the things that were done secretly, the Lord knew about them. And it's for those things that God is bringing them into judgment, as well as the things that were seen. So the things that were not right against the Lord, and they built them high places in all the cities, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. And they set them up, images and groves, in every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets. Notice that we're told there, by all the prophets and all the seers saying, Turn you from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You see, God had given them many warnings. God has given the people in the world today many warnings. You know, the same prophets that prophesied back then, also many of them spoke into the days in which we live. God's word is still available for people to read, to see what God has said will happen in our days. In Luke 16, 29, we've got that verse, you know, that parable, or we'll say parable, I don't believe it is a parable, it's an account that Jesus seems to give of the rich man and Lazarus. And they both die and they, they, they go uh, down to uh, the grave. We were talking about this at Bible study the other night, how all the mechanics of these things work. But this individual that's in torment, begs and says, can't we send Lazarus back to go and warn my brothers of this place? And the response that is given to them is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And of course, this individual makes the, the claim, yeah, but if one were to rise from the dead, then they believe. And of course, the response is given, even if one were to rise from the dead, they won't believe. And as we know, one did rise from the dead. It becomes the basis of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, you'd think that would be enough to convince people. You know, if the prophets were not enough, then we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the best attested facts of history. And yet many people would deny it. Many people would say, oh, that can't happen. That's, that's just... Have they ever looked at the evidence? Have they ever studied it? You know, I challenge anybody to look at the evidence for the resurrection. Many great men have ventured down that path of doubting the resurrection and looking at all the evidence have come to the conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Some great legal minds. You know, we've got witnesses around us, we've got the word of God, we've got the events that are going on that have been prophesied in God's word. 
You know, the same really is true for, for the people today in the world around us. They've got Moses, they've got the prophets, let them hear them. But you know, the reality is that many people will block their ears, they won't want to listen. And just have been done to Israel, God had sent them the prophets, he sent these seers, people that would tell them what was going to happen. And they rejected them, just like people do today. They don't want to hear it. Why? Because they wanted to live in their evil ways. They found too much pleasure in them to turn away from them. There's a number of prophets, of course, to Israel. Moses, of course we have. And Deuteronomy 28 is a great portion that speaks of this judgment that we're looking at now, as well as many of the other judgments that have come upon Israel and are yet to come upon Israel. But Elijah is a prophet that we've seen speaking to them. Elisha also. Hosea, Amos and Micah are three other prophets that specifically have messages to the northern kingdom of Israel. So God had sent them people. And there's a number of other prophets that actually we've seen going through kings who are not, in the sense, on that, that A-list of prophets that are listed in Scripture, who have their own books. There's a number of other prophets who um, the, the Lord just raised up to come and bring a message and then off they go again. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks, like to the neck of their fathers, that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers, and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And of course, this is a challenge for us, isn't it? To be sanctified is the word the Bible uses. It just means to be separate. The challenge for Israel was to be separate from the nations. Don't be like them. That's why a number of the laws and the rules that are laid down in the Torah, that some people debate and so on, you know, does it apply to us? Well, we're not under the law. But the whole purpose of so many of those laws were, don't be like the nations that are around you. Yeah, one of the things that sometimes is talked about is tattoos. Now in Deuteronomy, we're told that these things are, are not to be put on the, the skin of the Israelites. Why? Because the nations around Israel did it. Does it apply to us? We're not under the law. But the question would be, why would you want to do that if you made a decision to do it? You see, the, the whole purpose of it was... That God said, don't be like the people around you. Now, if somebody wants to do it, and they're doing it for whatever reason, and they're not trying to blend in, fine, I've got no problem with that. But, if you do what you do, and that's just one example, there's many more we could cite. So it's not, I'm not saying it's sinful, what I'm saying is, if you do what you do to blend in, then you're making the same error that the people of Israel did. They did what they did because they wanted to be like the nations. And God has specifically given them many examples of things not to do. Because you're not to be, you're not to blend in. Because those things will pull you away from God. If you start down that, that, that step of wanting to be like the world, wanting maybe to, to go out and socialise with them, to go to the places they go, to do the things they do, well, it's not going to be very long before you get caught up in it. And suddenly you start doing it. And that's the, the reason these warnings are given to us. You see, we should be separate. We should be a people that are identifiably different from the people of the world. 
Notice again, they went after the heathen that were round about them. I, I, I may have shared this, this before with you when I was younger. Um, not long after I'd started working for BT, there was a, a young guy that I'd been recruited at the same time. There was about 24 of us all joined at the same time. And this guy was um, just very, very fashion conscious. Um, back then, I wasn't so fashion conscious. I mean, obviously now, yeah, you see. But um, back in the day, I really wasn't that bothered about those things. But this guy just used to wear like Armani jeans and all the the, the you know, right clothing. And it was kind of like all the other guys used to, like, you know, talk about how Stuart was just so well dressed, and you know, he was going to be the one that the girls would be attractive to because you know he was just just right in every area. And one day uh, we went out, some friends of mine and, and me and Stu went out, and we were just chatting, and he just just took the wind out of my sails because he said, I wish I could be like you. I said, sorry? He said, I wish I could be like you. He said, you know, your, your faith, your, you know, you've just got such a, a certainty about your life. <laughs> I was like, wow, that really made me think. <laughs> Because there'd been me you know, partially thinking, well, that's the kind of standard that's being set. That's what we should try and be like. And then suddenly he says, how empty his life was. You know, that's the reality. You know, the world may look like they've got everything, but they're empty. How many rich people, how many of these people we see on the covers of magazines, these celebrities, seem to have everything and yet they've got nothing. Why would we really want to be like the heathen that are around about us? For Israel, why would they want to be like these nations? The nations that God had told Joshua and the, the children of Israel as they go in the land, get rid of them, don't be like that. There's no blessing in that. How quickly we can become deceived by these things. You know, and get uh, pulled away by the bright lights of the city thinking that there's something wonderful there. You know, there is some bright lights, or there are some bright lights that we should be seeking, and they're from another city. It's the New Jerusalem. And the light of that city is Jesus. If you're going to seek bright lights of the city, make sure it's that one. John, or First John 2, we'll be looking at this in a few weeks in our Bible study. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. John just saying, look, don't go after those things. They're passing away. There's no eternal value in them. And we read... And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God. And notice we're told, and made their molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves into evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. These molten images, these two calves, remember right the way back at the beginning of our journey through Kings. In fact, I actually say right the way back. It was actually First Kings back chapter 11 and 12. We see there's a kingdom divides and this individual Jeroboam is given this incredible opportunity to be king over God's inheritance. God grants Jeroboam sovereignty over ten of the tribes. 
because of the disobedience of Solomon. And of course, fearful that the people would return to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Jeroboam then decides he's going to set up these centers of worship in Dan and Bethel. Dan being right at the top of Israel, and Bethel being the lower part of Israel, so kind of mid-Israel if you look at it on the map, just above uh, the Jerusalem area. So these two golden calves are set up because Jeroboam doesn't want the people going back to Jerusalem for the feasts. You know, three times of the year, the Jews were supposed to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate their feasts. Of course, we have the, the ones surrounding Passover, then we have Pentecost, and then the, the ones that occur in the autumn. And they were to go back and celebrate. But Jeroboam is thinking, well, if the people go back to Jerusalem, they're going to start to think how great it was, and why do we need two kings? So, completely ignoring the fact that God had brought this to pass and God could maintain his kingdom just as easily as he establishes it, he ends up creating these golden calves, these bulls. And they become, of course, centres of idolatry. But, you know, just as it had been with the golden calf at Mount Sinai, these golden calves that are set up were intended to be representations of God. They weren't trying to create a false god, a new god, they were trying to create something that they could say, look, this is your God. I mean, um, Aaron, uh, Mount Sinai, this is your God that has led you out of Egypt. You know, let this be a representation. You can worship this, something that's tangible for you. And the same thing was happening in Israel as a result of Jeroboam. And now, uh, right at the end of the kingdom, we're told the same thing had remained all the way through. Probably many of them had even got to the point of forgetting these were supposed to be a representation of God. They just became an object to worship. But of course they weren't misrepresentations. They weren't God. They weren't the real God. You can't replicate God by something that can be seen and something that can be touched. You see, we have a charge also as believers. You see, we've been called to represent God. This is a really important issue. You see, we've been called to be ambassadors to represent our king in a foreign realm you know our citizenship is in heaven and we are here on assignment you know the lord could take you home at any time the rapture could occur at any moment you know right from the time of the ascension in fact actually really from from the time of uh, um, the holy spirit being given at pentecost at any point in history the lord could have said right that's it all my believers all the believers come now Nothing has to be completed. Nothing has to be fulfilled. So why does the Lord leave us? To be ambassadors. To be witnesses. That others will be saved and that we will be trained. And that's a big part of what we're going through. is a training program. But we are called to represent God. But you know, we can't just represent God in the way that we choose. It doesn't work that way. We can't come up with some representation and say to people this is God you worship this because God has already shown us who he is in the person of Jesus Christ and there is no other way we can't come to God in a a different manner only through Jesus can we come every occasion that we look at in scripture where God is misrepresented it's met with God's wrath and God's judgment. God is very jealous of his name, of his character, of his holiness. 
And anything we do, even in conversations, if we represent God as just this kind of loving, dovey kind of, you know, everything's going to be alright, God's not really cross with you type of thing. We're misrepresenting God. But at the same time, we represent God as a hard and cold and a God that is going to bring wrath and judgment. We're misrepresenting God because neither of those are the full picture. We need to be very careful how we represent God to other people. And particularly, I'd say, how we represent God to our family. God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of grace. That's how we should represent him. To whoever we talk to at any time. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. And then we're told also Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. I mean this is just so sad because you see, Judah's sin is now greater than Israel's. Why? Because we're each going to be judged according to how much light we've received. Now, of course, when it comes to us and judgment, we've said before that we were judged at the cross at Calvary. Jesus paid for our sin. But, you know, there's an award ceremony coming when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat of Christ. And we will be judged based upon how we have lived our lives as Christians. To those who have been given much, much will be required. And God has given many in the church wonderful gifts and abilities and talents. What are you doing with your gifts, abilities and talents? Have you just buried them in the ground? Or are you using them for his glory? Because there is going to be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of accounting. If you, all you've done is build with wood, hay and straw, well, those things will be consumed by the fire. But if we've built with gold, silver and precious stones, the things that are purified by the heat, the refined, that's speaking of laying our treasure in heaven, the things that we do for God's kingdom, for God's glory. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we read there, picking up verse 6, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Has thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain, under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And then notice, And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. You know, this is like one child doing something that's naughty. Doing something that's wrong. The other child observing. Seeing the first child get in trouble for it. And then go and try it themselves. And of course any of you with children know that kind of thing doesn't happen. But you know, this is exactly what happened with Israel. Israel had rebelled against God. They've been so foolish. They end up getting taken away into captivity as we're seeing laid out now. But Judah's looking on. They see all this. And we're told. And carrying on in Jeremiah, picking up chapter 3, verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not. 
but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of a whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned unto me with her whole heart. But feignedly, says the Lord. That's like, you know, in pretense. They made the right noises, but they hadn't really turned to God. Such a, a shame. You know, there's a very interesting parallel we can look at between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And yes, the Catholic Church got into all sorts of idolatry and made lots of mistakes. And yet, you know, the Catholic Church has done some good things down through the ages. You know, a number of social things that have been done. Looking after the poor, the sick and the needy. The Protestant Church saw all the errors, all the mistakes. There's in danger of going far beyond just some of the errors that the Catholic Church have made. There's a very interesting parallel between Israel and Judah and the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. The Protestant Church has left so many things undone. Yes, it reclaimed the the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But there are many other things that weren't addressed. We read in Ecclesiastes 1.9, The thing that has been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. This is Solomon's way of just saying history repeats itself. I quite like the quote from Hegel, German philosopher. He said, if there's one thing that history teaches us, it's that man learned nothing from history. I love that. The more you think about that, the more it kind of messes with your brain a bit. But yet we don't learn from the mistakes of the past. Just to remind you again what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Now all these things happen unto them, Israel, Judah, for examples, for examples, and they are written for our admonition. So the things that we're looking at this morning, they're for us. Now specifically here in Corinthians, Paul is looking back to that which occurred in the wilderness, and particularly the events recorded in the book of Numbers. And Paul lists a whole bunch of things. And really basically says, this is the list don't do these things. These are mistakes they made. If you look at that list now, and you go through that list, every single one of those things on that list, the church has fallen down and made the same mistakes again. And repeatedly, going over and over. Paul says, Wherefore let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's a dangerous position when you think you've got it right, when you think you have the answers. When you think you're comfortable with your understanding, with your doctrine and everything else. Paul says, be careful. You're never in such a position that you are not prone to falling. We should learn from these mistakes and make sure they don't become part of our lives. Let's carry on back in Kings 17 verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them. And delivered them into the hand of the spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. For he rent Israel from the house of David. And they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them sin a great sin. So again, just recapping a bit of history, just to remind us. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. And they departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now, the Assyrian Empire 
ends up covering this enormous piece of territory. This area here, this, this grey area on the map, is really desert area. Nothing really grows there, nobody really lives in that portion. And this whole region, you may have heard this referred to before, is known as the Fertile Crescent, going down from Egypt all the way up, round over the top, and then down through past Babylon and so on. Um, and certainly in the, uh, the times that we're looking at, all the trade routes typically were round this way and so on. Now, up until this point, Syria had been, Damascus there, the capital of, um, Syria had been one of the, the main um, threats to Israel, Israel being this area down here, Samaria, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, okay, and all of this. Now, Samaria, Samaria we've already seen, has effectively been um, well, reduced to almost nothing at this point, and now this whole area, uh, Assyria, takes over. And what we see is that the uh, people taken captive now from Samaria are distributed around the places uh, in the Assyrian Empire. And we read verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Katath, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from uh, Serevaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Now, the reason for this is very simple. If you're going to take all the people away from the land, and there's nobody there to, to till the ground, to look after it, it's just going to become a barren wilderness. And of course, this is prime real estate in a sense. So the king wants to move some people here. Now, what he's doing, he's taking some of the people that he's displaced from other places, move them into Israel, and take the Jews out of Israel, or to be correct, the Jews is a term that doesn't really get applied to Israel until they come back after the captivity, but Israel, uh, moves Israel out of the land and to these other places, these other cities from where these other people came from. So, we're going to have an interesting situation. And we read, And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Of course, these were people that didn't know anything about God. Why should they? They'd come from other places. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. You see, every land in their understanding had its own God. They didn't realize, of course, that there was one God overall. Therefore, has he sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. So they go back to the king of Assyria and say, we've got a real problem, we have a lion infestation. Can you help us? Now again, his reference to lions. It's very interesting, because if you go up to the British Museum in London, and it looks a little bit like that on a sunny day. Uh, and you go in on the downstairs in the Assyria room, uh, or the various rooms you've got, but one particular part, you've got a number of these reliefs. And you can just about see here uh, these Assyrian warriors in the back of their chariots, and they've got a lion uh, that's about to jump up and attack them here. Um, and you've got another one here that's been shot through with an arrow. There's another one that's laying down there uh, that's shot, and there's another one here with an arrow going into its head. Uh, to show you another picture. Okay, so we've got another one there with arrows going through. Another one here. Another, well, that's a horse there chasing onto them. So we've got a number. And in fact, this goes on. Another line there. There's at least three or four arrows in that one. Uh, that one clearly seems to have been got. Uh, this one, another one there, another one down the bottom. Interestingly, if you look at what the text says in the British Museum, it says this. Uh, Royal Lion Hunts is the way it's entitled. Lion hunting in Assyria was the sport of kings. 
The sculptures in this room carved about um, four, sorry, 645 to 635 BC mostly show the sporting exploits of the last great Assyrian king, uh, Ashurbanipal. Uh, the hunt scenes full of tension and realism rank among the finest achievements in Assyrian art. Now, I'm not going to dispute the fact that the Assyrians may have hunted lions for sport. But if you look at these pictures, this seems to be depicting far more than just a little bit of sport, hunting. This seems like they've got a problem with lions and they're trying to get rid of them. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly what the Bible said happened at this time. Again, you look at the, the time of when they're saying these were carved, just shortly after the time that we're looking at now, that these carvings were done, historically. So I'll just leave that with you. I just think it's an interesting aside. Then the king of Assyria commanded, now he's got this problem with these lions and people are being eaten by them, saying, carry the one of the priests him you brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, isn't this interesting? You've got an individual here who's referred to as a priest, probably not of the tribe of Levi. Because if you remember way back when Jeroboam became king, it was kind of priests or us. If you want to give it a go, come and give it a go. And so loads of people decided, yeah, fancy being a priest, looks like a nice job. You know, get to play golf twice a week and, you know, those kind of things. So they ended up with a number of people who weren't of the tribe of Levi all becoming priests. Of course, God had made it very clear that only the Levites should be priests. But these individuals do. Now they're carried away and one of these individuals comes back to the land whom for the last few hundred years him and his ancestors have lived there not serving God not following the ways of God and now he's asked to instruct people on the ways of God and so he does and this of course is what brings rise to the Samaritans okay we find of course Jesus Speaking of the Samaritans, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have in John uh, chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria. And of course the disciples didn't want to pass through that area. And you know the Jews that were travelling down country would typically cross over onto the other side of the Jordan so they wouldn't pass through Samaria. Because these Samaritans were just considered abhorrent, abhorrent by the, the Jews, the real Jews. Because they were just a mixed bag of people that had come from other nations. And then been, they'd been taught mixed things about God. Some of them may have been true things, but some of them also would no doubt have been false. This priest that comes back given this job. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, and the men of Cush made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made uh, Ashima, and the Avites and made uh, Nibhaz, and Tartak, and the Serovites burnt their children in fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of uh, Sephavaim. So all these individuals just getting on with their idolatrous practices that they'd already been committing when their own lands, now they're moved in. And we end up with this blend of um, Judaism, if you like, and the, the pagan cultures that were being infused into the land. And that's where, as I said, the Samaritans really come from. And that's why the Jews hated them so much. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served him, um, served their own gods. Notice that sentence. They feared the Lord 
and serve their own gods. It's kind of, how can they really fear God and serve their own gods? You see, it's all a kind of a pretense. After the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and the commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a stretched out arm, him shall you fear, and him shall you worship, and to him shall you do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore, and you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, neither shall you fear other gods. So this is how it should have been. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit, and this is the sad conclusion. They did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. What a tragic end to this northern kingdom. As now so many of them are carried away into exile, never to return to the land of their fathers, to die in their captivity, to die in a place where God wasn't thought about or cared for. I wonder how many of them lamented what they'd lost when they ended up in these foreign countries, when they ended up being forced to serve these other gods, not through a choice they were making, but because they were told they had to now do this. It's a real tragedy. What a contrast to those who serve God. Next week we're going to pick up, we're going to look at some really good news. We're going to look at a, a king who has a, a really good resume, King Hezekiah. So please read on ahead, read on through chapter 18 and chapter 19, uh, and we'll look at some of the wonderful things that are given to us in Kings of the account of this king of whom we're told is a good king. Um, better than any of the kings of Judah that were before him and better than any of the kings that followed him as well. So that's where we'll be next week. So please read ahead. Let's bow our hearts. Father, as we look at this tragedy as the northern kingdom, after all the opportunities you'd given, after all the prophets that had gone to speak to them, even after that wonderful situation on Mount Carmel where Elijah had said, if God is God, follow him. And the people had cried out and said that they follow you. And yet so soon they reverted to their idolatrous ways. Father, help us not to be so proud as to think that that would never be us. Because Lord, help us to see that we are just as susceptible to making the mistakes that they made. Help us, Lord, in all of these things to... Learn to walk by faith and live by grace. Lord, to walk by that faith in you, to trust, Lord, that you are leading and guiding us, whether we understand, whether we see the end of the road or not. All we need to see, Lord, is the next step. So, Father, give us the faith to live that way, trusting you. And, Lord, give us that grace. 
Oh, we need your grace, Lord, to help us to overcome the things of this world. Give us grace, Lord, that we would reject, Lord, the temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We need your grace. And so, Lord, we ask these things now. Just continue that work that you've begun in us. And may these things, Lord, be lessons for us that we wouldn't repeat the mistakes of the past. That our lives would be different. That, Lord, we would live, Lord, before you with our minds being transformed. And so, Lord, these things we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.